Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. In the second of two podcasts looking at value versus growth investing, Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, talks to Stuart Dunbar, partner at Bailey Gifford, about what a growth investment is, what investors look for in growth stocks, and what the future looks like for growth and value investing. Hello, welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. For the second time in a row, I've been allowed to keep Sarah's seat warm in the host seat. And today, in that vein, we continue our series of interviews with some of the superstar fund managers uh, from outside of Barclays that we get to help run your money. It's not as easy as that, as you know well. Uh, we have dedicated teams scouring the world day and night for the investment deity of the future, uh, safe in the knowledge that past performance really can tell us very little, as the regulator warns. And and today it's Stuart Dunbar. So before I will, I'll chat to Stuart first and, and then just update you on the latest goings on from markets at the end. But welcome, Stuart. Uh, lovely to have you on the show. Thank you, Will. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. Um, now, as a starter for one, uh, can you just tell the audience a little bit about sort of where your focus is and what an average day looks like if there is if such a thing as an average day exists? <laughs> I think we probably do have some average days. The way we think about the world, well, is it's very long term. What we focus on is trying to, you know, figure out what's going on in the world in five years' time. So that does impact. So our, average, our days are much alike. So there's some combination of people can travel, uh, people travel all over the world doing investment research. So that's one type of spending a day. Other ways are um, sitting here in our Edinburgh offices, in which the atmosphere is more like a library than perhaps the <laughs> typical version of everyone um, shouting down phones at each other. And we spend a lot of time trying to we, talking to clients, trying to make sure they understand what we do. That's part of the journey. And then, um, as we'll maybe get into later, um, we spend a lot of time with external to the company, talking to entrepreneurs and academics and people that can provide us with ideas on those longer term timescales. Yeah, nice. That's uh, that's very helpful. Um, now, now, just as a sort of note, we've explained uh, a few times, we are something called uh, style neutral in our multi-asset class funds and portfolios, certainly within the wealth side of things. Now, styles, just a reminder, they're a little like categories, a little like industry sectors that pertain to certain types of investments, growth, value, quality, so on. Now, these styles, as we said yesterday, they wax and wane in their popularity over time, mostly totally unpredictably in spite of the industry's best efforts. So growth stocks, Stuart, tell us a little bit more. So, you know, we spoke about value stocks with one of the stars of Schroeder's yesterday. What makes a growth stock for you? Yeah, um, I, I think fundamentally this is about timescales. So the sorts mm. of things that we're looking for, we're not that interested in what a company is doing right now and observing its current level of earnings and its current business. We're far more interested in trying to find companies that can evolve and adapt and, and hopefully rapidly grow their earnings on a sort of five-year-plus timescale. So that yeah. creates a different mindset for us. What we what we define as growth is change and disruption. There are different types of growth. Some companies can grow just because the world is growing, you know, like food companies, for example, are, are, are pretty safe plays and can, mm-hmm. can grow at the same speed as the economy grows and food consumption grows. But then there are other much more aggressive approaches to growth, which are what companies are on the right side of extreme change in the world. And that's in things like how is technology facilitating changes in approach to health and changes in how we entertain ourselves and that sort of stuff. So it's very much for us 
you know, rather than assess whether a company is fairly valued now, which arguably is what a value approach is, is we're much more in the camp of let's embrace some uncertainty and imagine where companies might be in five years' time and what they might then be worth. Mm, fascinating, fascinating. And I guess, you know, within that, you kind of hint that all these styles are very broad churches and they contain all sorts of you know a variety of stocks uh, and sometimes you know you can find stocks that crop up in both camp style uh, you know uh, growth value so on and so on but you know one thing that's very notable is that growth is a very very popular style at the moment for a range of you know suggested reasons from the long-term trend in interest rates behind us to the regulatory backdrop so does the fact that growth as a style and some of the sort of, you know, your playpen essentially has been in the ascendancy for the last decade. Does that make it harder to find opportunities? Are there sort of are the opportunities being squeezed out by the fad for, not fad, that's the wrong word, <laughs> but yes, the tendency towards growth at the moment? No, I understood. I mean, you're right. There's been a huge, there's a huge tailwind for what people think is growth. And I'll come back to that in a minute. So for about 12 years until the end of maybe the middle of 2021, you had this coincidence of, you know, very abnormally low interest rates. I do wonder, you know, now we're back at 5% interest rates. This is normal. It's the last 10 years that's not been normal. <laughs> yeah, and so that was very helpful for growth companies because funding was cheap and easy to come by. And because of low interest rates, capital was being pushed into risk, risky investments, if you like. Mm-hmm. So undoubtedly that was helpful. I do have a slightly different take on it which is, well, no, to finish on that first point, so what we did see, I think, is valuations of growth companies getting to very extreme levels towards the ends of 2020, the start of 2021. And, you know, there's some questions around there about what, what, how should growth managers have dealt with what is probably an unprecedented uptake in growth assets. The big challenge is, you know, our clients don't want us to change the style and what we do. So that, that was quite interesting at the end of 2020. We can come back to that. I think, mm. though, the important distinction here is not all growth is equal. So yeah. th- there are many, many companies out there who have benefited quite well from using cheap money to gear up their balance sheets, arguably to make less than great long-term investments. And the market's just looked through that stuff for a long time because there was little penalty to it. I think now we are, to answer your question, we are in a tougher environment for growth, but there is always growth available. So if you if you drill into it a little bit and you find companies that have pricing power and those that are well-funded and those that are actually not depending on economic growth but are depending on change and disruption, so they're displacing other companies, there's a lot of that going on. I would argue there's as much disruption going on in the world now almost as there's ever been before. Some of the technologies that are coming along in areas of healthcare and payment systems and even food and energy, the world is changing very rapidly. And that's actually a great environment for stock picking. But I wouldn't mm-hmm. generalize that, you know, as far as to say, you know, there's this sort of huge cycle between volume and growth. I think we've got to really drill in and pick the right companies more so than ever before. That's interesting. I mean, so, so one of the discussions yesterday we were having was about the idea or the perception that value investing can be more resource intensive just because of the risks inherent in it, you know, simplifying, picking up bad companies can take a lot more analytical time, essentially, or a lot more deep dives into what's going on. But from what you're saying, that's not entirely fair. You know, it, you know, if you're going into a phase where, you know, there could be more jeopardy for some of these companies and the risks of your research not paying off are greater, does that, do you think there's a sort of, a level, you know, what, what are the things you worry about from this front and how do you resource these, these picks? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the worry is just that we misunderstand 
the facts at our fingertips and we and we mm. make wrong decisions but you know we try not to do that um <laughs> but i mean in some ways that comes to i, I think it's a highly resource intensive business either value mm. or growth there's a distinction that there are many different approaches to investment management out there it's possible to do to, to be an investment manager with fairly light resources if your approach is quantitative you can use machines as well as humans mm-hmm. you know that's not what we do i think that's a very tough thing but i'm sure you'll talk to others about that we're yeah. much more in the camp of this. This is not an exercise in staring at Bloomberg all day. This is an exercise in getting out into the real world, talking to management, talking to entrepreneurs, That, as I mentioned earlier, talking to academics, really, really drilling into the opportunities that we think companies have, getting to know their management, understanding their motivations and incentives. All of that is massively resource intensive. For us, it's not... I think it's probably different to your average value manager who are much more focused on the perhaps the economics of a company as they exist and pouring over accounts all day, that sort yeah. of thing, or historic accounts. We're not really doing that. It's much more outward-facing, arguably a bit more subjective and trying to be imaginative about where companies are going. Now, doing that on a global basis, and we do invest all over the world, is an incredibly resource-intensive exercise. We have about 160 people in our investment team, and... 100 plus external sources of research we try to use lesser known research you know we we don't we don't sort of sit around reading broker research all day it's it's independent research so we you put all of that together and i guess to answer your question that's just a huge amount of fundamental real world analysis that has to go on but only by doing that can we back to this point about most companies are not interesting even most growth companies are not interesting um if you look at some of the statistics it's remarkable how small a number of companies actually generate the bulk of stock market returns. We are simply trying to find those, you know, and, and some would say it's a needle in the haystack, but that's fine. If you've got enough resource, you've got a chance of finding the needle. And the needle can be very valuable to find, I think. Yeah. And and just to that point, you know, so again, you know, if you're dealing with a that more subjective assessment of the sort of five, 10 year view, how do you validate it internally? How do you sort of check that people aren't getting carried away? Individual analysts aren't getting carried away with their own behavioral biases. How do you sort of Yes, validate the calls that these subjective assessments kind of yeah. are based on. I, I think that's about um, it's about teamwork and humility, these sorts of things. Um, so we don't have we typically don't have you know individual star managers. We have processes in which people work in small teams together. Mm-hmm. We, we're okay if multiple people look at the same potential investment because it's actually quite handy. They they then get together. We discuss that. It's a good way of flushing out what the issues are, and that whole process I think just creates a bit of a Sanity check for want of a better. I mean, it's very easy. It's very easy as growth investors, particularly at the at the faster growing end of the the growth spectrum, to almost sort of start making implausible assumptions to justify some lofty valuation. Um, it's I, I think we before, really, yes. yeah, it does happen, and that to some extent comes back to what happened at the end of twenty sorry twenty twenty one. You know, not necessarily talking about our firm, but as a general point. What assumptions were people then making about growth companies to justify the the high valuations they were trading on? So, Mm. you know, and and arguably some of those assumptions turned out to be extrapolating the growth of the second half of 2020 for 10 years was not the right thing to do in some cases. Mm. So we we try to make sure we don't do that by having this process of internal debate and challenge. We sometimes write devil's advocate notes in which somebody actually sets out to destroy the investment case. And if they find it hard to do so, then that gives us an indication that we're not being overly optimistic. 
Yeah, as it goes, we do the same in our tactical asset allocation team. They do bull bear debates, and those who have proposed a particular trade are actually forced onto the other side of the trade to argue against themselves, which could be quite fun to watch, actually. But yes, uh, I fully agree with that. So, w- what? Just quickly, I mean, I, you know, you, I guess sort of there's so much that's outside of our control as investors. But what kind of plausibly worries you most? What keeps you up at night apart from failing transport networks? <laughs> those keep me up at night. What the? I suppose there are some sectors that we're just not interested in because we don't see them as long-term growth opportunities. And that's things like, you know, utilities or traditional retailers, for instance, because we just see, you know, that utilities are fascinating. They're regulated. It's difficult to make a high return. Look at what's happened in the last few years. And and regular retailers, you know, we'd always have Amazon before Walmart. So I suppose it's, it's if that's your starting point, you've got to be very wary that you are the disruptor and not the disrupted. So that worries mm-hmm. us a bit, you know, as as... So some people call us tech investors. I don't think we are tech investors. I think we are investors who invest in companies that use technology to grow and embrace new opportunities. But mm-hmm. if you invest that way, there's always the danger that someone's coming along that's going to do even better, or there is a technology that's that we haven't thought of that displaces the companies we're currently in. So I think it's a sort of, um, we, we've got to stay very focused on the long term, but it's almost a the natural state of looking over your shoulder to see what's coming along in these more interesting sectors like health and energy and payments. And, you know, are the companies that we think are, are going to be the winners, are they going to stay the winners or is somebody else going to come along and disrupt them? So that's a sort of constant state of worry, if you like. Another, perhaps the opposite argument to that is what we're not trying to do here is, and I guess this is really important for your investors, you know, it, this is not a short-term game. We don't worry about quarterly earnings at companies. We don't worry about the performance of our portfolios against the benchmark in a six-month or even 12-month period. We're trying to take a very long view on real world progress. And in doing that, it's almost as important what you consciously don't worry about. Don't, if you become obsessed with quarterly performance and quarterly earnings and things, you're going to become very risk averse. And, uh, you know, we've got to try hard not to do that. So, so in a strange answer to your question, there's lots of things to worry about, but actually you've got to know what to not worry about as well. I like that. I'm going to take that away. Tell that to my wife as well. <laughs> so, so your yeah, final question, I guess. A lot of the excitement at the moment in the growth style, in particular, surrounds this, you know, incoming new technology in the form of large language models, you know, ChatGPT and its various sibling and pro- siblings and progeny. What are your thoughts on the opportunity, the threats here, and ha- and how actually to exploit it for investors? Yeah, really interesting. And I, I think I'll answer the, the small question and the bigger question, I think, is really just about applications of artificial intelligence. These large language models, we have to remind ourselves that they are, I mean, they're phenomenal. Um, I've mm-hmm. been using them to, sometimes I'll scribble down a note on a company or something. It's a complete mess full of typos, bad grammar. I can do it in five minutes and then it would take me half an hour to fix it. Using OpenAI or ChatGPT, you can throw the gibberish into the machine and it spits back out a sensible note for you. But the important point, so it saves me loads of time. I love it already. The important point here, however, is it's not generating intelligence. It's a phenomenally clever system whereby it can make projections about what you were trying to do and it can come up with answers for you. So I think we need to, we need to, there's, that's, that's going to be a huge productivity gain in my small way, but I'm sure there's hundreds of bigger. I agree. What we need to understand though is that that's, I I actually think it's funny. This, this artificial intelligence question has, suddenly burst into the fore and some of the companies around that some of the big tech companies in particular that own the ip you know i've, I've sort of had a new breath of life recently because of that 
I'm not sure whether that's perhaps overdone. I mean, these are big companies and this is only one part of it and this is not a new thing. Mm. But then on the, the general application of AI, it's other areas that are less obvious. So ChatGPT has got everyone's attention, but what actually matters is AI as a medical diagnostic tool. Mm. You know, there are already significant uses of AI and things like understanding huge gene data sets so that we can better link causes of disease to treatments of disease. AI can diagnose some forms of cancer better than doctors can already. And then there's other applications like autonomous transport, drones. We invest in a company that flies medical supplies around, mainly in Africa, but increasingly in other places. And they use AI to make sure these drones can actually find their way around and drop the medicine off in the right place without having a disaster. So there's there's real applications of AI. I think it's super exciting. It will come out in all sorts of different places. Interestingly, I don't think the, the, the fuss over chat GPT lately is really all that additive to the to the argument. Mm. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah, that, that, that's super interesting. And I, and I think, you know, the point we've been making a lot of is that sort of often in these, you know, technological revolutions, it's the it's the buyers, not the makers who um, who benefit the most. So, yeah, there's huge amounts of fat to trim. This might be boring, but if people really are interested in this stuff, there's some very interesting books out there about financial backings of technological revolutions and how long they take to happen. We, we yes. have one of, one, of the, one of the academic partnerships we have is with the University of Surrey, and there's a professor there, Carlotta Perez, Yes, who writes on technological price. innovation. And it's fancy. I mean, you know, even now, you think that we're this incredibly... The internet has has already happened. It really hasn't. We're still at most halfway through that process. Fascinating. Stuart, thank you. So so just quickly, in terms of sort of markets and stuff going on, there's not actually too much new to report from the last time. So I think we talked about there being potentially a pause from the Federal Reserve uh, in terms of their interest rate rising cycle. That did happen. But the likelihood is still that the US economy still looks to be straining a little bit too hard on its leash. There was less relief, in our opinion, from this week's CPI data than some have argued. So we would contest still that the battle with inflation is not yet behind us. It's not yet in our rearview mirror that central banks probably still have more interest rate rises to inflict on the economy. That may suggest a bit more strain here and there on the on the financial system, on household budgets in the UK. So we're not quite out of the woods yet. But but as Stuart is talking about, and as we've been talking about a lot on the podcast, the medium term picture, because of the disarrival of large language models and all the various kind of potential applications and advancements and enhancements, we are now entering a new technological revolution and those things are extremely attractive to be invested through. So your medium term returns, I think, are better anchored to that, or we think are better anchored to that human ingenuity than they were even uh, a couple of years ago. So very interesting times for investors. But again, thank you, Stuart. That was really helpful and really useful. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.